Hey, it's Bob Garfield. Jumping in with a quick word about what's coming up on this week's Bully Pulpit. It's actually the second installment of a two-parter, this one exploring whether the First Amendment, the very foundation of our democracy, is maybe not quite up to the challenges of social media and political propaganda in the 21st century. Episode 14 of Bully Pulpit, coming Friday from BooksmartStudios.org. Of all the academic lines of inquiry, scientific research has long felt like the most insulated from the ever-shifting winds of social change. That's why it came as such a surprise to many when one prominent scientist was uninvited from a major lecture series at MIT, a cancellation based not on any underlying faults with his scientific expertise. Rather, Dorian Abbott, Associate Professor of Geophysical Sciences at University of Chicago, expressed a position that was at odds with the prevailing orthodoxy around diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI as it's come to be known, on college campuses. We spoke recently at his dining room table in Chicago, where I first asked him to tell me about his work. I work on a lot of different subjects related to earth and planetary sciences. Right now, I'm really excited about planetary dynamics. And one thing that I did recently that I really liked was I calculated the probability that Mercury will crash into another planet or the sun in the next two billion years, which no one had done before. Not just me, with my colleagues. And is it going to crash? There's a one in 10,000 chance in the next two billion years. Wow. Okay. But... Recently, you've been thrown into the limelight, not by design, but you were given the honor of going to MIT to give a talk. Well, so it's the Carlson Lecture, and it's been going for about 10 years, and it's supposed to be a public outreach lecture. You know, very big international people in the field of climate and the applications of climate are invited. I would have been, I think, the youngest, most junior person to give this. It's a recognition and an honor that helps you get promotions and things like that. What were you going to talk about? What I was going to talk about was applying climate models that we use for future climate to other planets, Hmm. to planets that could be like Earth orbiting different types of stars. And that's interesting because we want to know which one of those planets could be like Earth, and then maybe we could follow up and find life on them, Mm -hmm. if there's life on any of them. It's also interesting because those climate models will be in a regime that's a little bit different from Earth, in some places a little warmer, and we can run the model, and then we can make an astronomical observation, and we can see if the model did it right, and that would be a way to indicate whether the model is accurate for future climate. Future climate on Earth? or On on Earth, on Earth, yeah. Wow. So that's the interesting interplay. You take an Earth model developed for Earth climate, use it on a different planet, but then other planet observations could allow you to test the Earth model in a regime that it's never been in, but that we might enter in global warming. And so it's a way to constrain the model with empirical data that's not available on Earth. That's fascinating. So your research actually has implications for climate change and how to potentially manage it or how to adapt to it? It's research into understanding the physics of climate and how it works. And in this case, clouds were a really important component. And that's the biggest part of uncertainty in climate change. They have a huge impact on radiative transfer, on how much sunlight is reflected and how Mm -hmm. strong the greenhouse effect is. 
Fantastic. So tell me a little bit about what you felt like when you first got invited, when you received the invitation. Oh, I thought this is going to be real fun. I really like my colleagues at MIT. So I was just thinking like, oh, this is going to be fun. Dorian's talk was supposed to be purely about his scientific research. He would speak about the insights gained from studying the Earth's climate and how those insights have been used to predict which planets outside the solar system might be habitable. Nothing controversial about that. But earlier this year, Dorian co-authored an op-ed for Newsweek titled The Diversity Problem on Campus. In it, Dorian argued that the kinds of diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives common on college campuses violate what he sees as the ethical and legal principle of equal treatment. In particular, he objected to the ways in which an emphasis on DEI was sometimes being used to exclude candidates even before evaluating their academic qualifications. Dorian went on to propose an alternative framework for evaluation that he termed the Merit, Fairness and Equality Framework. We'll get into Dorian's exact argument in a moment, but first, I asked Dorian to tell me what ensued after Newsweek published the essay. Well, I guess I have not been secret about my feelings about doing hiring and admissions based on merit. And that's an unpopular opinion in some crowds. And so there was sort of like a bunch of people saying something along the lines of they shouldn't have invited me or they should uninvite me on Mm -hmm. Twitter. Here's a tweet that was part of this storm. Imagine being a student or employee of color in an environment where someone like this is rewarded with one of the most prestigious platforms to speak. The Newsweek article is so disturbing, I had to pause after each sentence. Please fix this, MIT. A number of alums posted saying they were infuriated by Dorian Abbott's harmful views and demanded that MIT show its commitment to DEI by rescinding the invitation. A week after that, the department chair wanted to talk to me. I thought what was going to happen was he was going to say, you know, we got these students who are kind of like, they're a little hot and bothered about this, but you know, that's okay. We explained to them, he has his opinion. You can have your opinion. That's not the subject of this talk. And we also explained to them that MIT values academic freedom. And we have a set of punishments in place for people who disrupt seminars and you know we're going to go ahead with your seminar but just wanted to cover that and make sure we're all on the same page so that's what you're expecting that's what i was expecting the chair to say but then he said oh we decided to cancel the carlson lecture and you know we'd like to have you at some point to give a department seminar and i said yeah okay i'll do that but that's pretty much how that went right so when they told you they're canceling it for this reason what was going through your head I guess I was kind of shocked. I didn't think that could happen at MIT. I don't want to like, you know, name names of colleges where you might think that would happen. But the last place I expected that to happen was MIT. Why? What does MIT mean to you, which surprised you about this reaction? Well, they had an issue, you know, a few years ago. I don't really know the details, but there was an Indian person, scientist or economist that people wanted to cancel and they said no. And then also it's really a technical institution. Typically, you associate this mode of thinking much more with certain subsets of the humanities and not engineers and scientists. Most of the times when one hears about such stories, and unfortunately, they're becoming far more common, 
today than they have been. It is usually someone from the humanities or someone in the social sciences. It's rare to hear this happening to someone in the sciences. What's also rare to see is scientists speaking up very strongly against the kind of diversity initiatives that you've been talking about. Where is it that you were coming from, that you as a scientist are interested in these conversations and decided to take a stand? There's sort of two things going on. With political stuff, if it's just like who's going to be head pooba, I don't really care. Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, you know, I agree with some on one thing, some on another. It's not that important to me. Mm -hmm. But over the past few years, it hasn't been kind of like, oh, here's the liberal and here's the conservative. It's almost like they want a revolution. Mm. And so that's made me uncomfortable. I got especially uncomfortable in 2020 because we had this period for at least five years where people have been trying to shut down the other side yeah. from speaking. And that's happened with both sides. When you don't allow rational discourse, if you have to settle a dispute, you have to revert to violence. And that's what we saw in the summer of 2020. It was just a whole summer of violence mostly from one side. And then in the winter, we had violence and rioting from the other side. To me, it's just like, I don't want to live in that kind of society. Mm -hmm. So that's the one side. And then the other side is science is supposed to be like this special secret garden where you can go relax and just play with your equations. And, and we're talking about not science stuff in science departments. And that's really irritating to me. This is not your first brush with controversy. It's certainly perhaps the one that's made the biggest news. But I believe earlier at University of Chicago, which is your home institution, you have critiqued certain policies or certain initiatives. University of Chicago is, we all kind of look up to it in so many ways because it's always stood for academic freedom and it, there's a history of it. The president, you know, has made fantastic statements about protecting academic freedom. Is what's happening on the ground over there in line with what the rhetoric is on the national scene about the University of Chicago? And what were your experiences within your home institution that led you to speak out? Yeah, so President Zimmer, who's now the chancellor, he really is strong on these issues. I guess all I would add to that is there's a culture of academic freedom that's important too. It's not just the policies. Mm -hmm. And there's a risk of them becoming a dead letter if people don't actually use their academic freedom. So a lot of people are scared and they're not saying anything. And then it's almost as if effectively academic freedom doesn't exist. But when I did speak out on this, I got 100% support from President Zimmer. Now he's the chancellor, but he was the president at the mm -hmm. time. So he was a stalwart of academic freedom, I would say. And then the other thing I would add to that is everybody knows about the Chicago principles, but to me, an equally important issue is the Calvin Report. Mm -hmm. It was written in the late 1960s in the previous period of major turmoil in the U United States. And it basically says the university will take no stances on social and political issues because doing so would be an implicit criticism and censorship of any faculty member who disagrees, and we need our faculty to express their opinions freely. Starting in the spring of 2020, there were serial violations, extreme violations of the Calvin Report by the provost and president all the way down to department chairs. At the University of Chicago. At the University of Chicago. So departments making statements, extreme 
political statements, unquestionable political statements. And the situation arose exactly as the Calvin Report was warning against. Anyone who thought differently was being effectively censored. And this came up when I spoke out on this stuff because some of the other faculty were saying like, well, how can we just let him say this stuff? Because the university has made all these statements saying this stuff is important to us. So can you tell me a little bit more specific about what exactly you spoke out against? I had been feeling like I was self-censoring for at least five years. But the real trigger for me was I was in a number of situations, not all at the university. One was associated with a national fellowship. One was associated with an international conference where there was discrimination and quotas being used for hiring, giving positions, taking people into conferences. And the discrimination that I've noticed that was most marked was against Asians and Asian Americans and against men. And that made me very uncomfortable. I didn't feel good about being a part of that. The actual proximate cause was we have a weekly science seminar and a faculty member gave one that was sort of promoting, I guess you would say like the social justice equity agenda. And I asked to give a response to it and the people organizing it said no. And the department chair said no. Is this your department chair? My department chair. They said, we don't want to hear your perspective. You know, we're not interested in that in this department. Okay, carry on. So you could basically say that the difference in perspective is equal opportunity versus equal outcome. So yeah, let's dig into this. So that's what I want to promote, equal opportunity. And the other person wanted to promote equal outcome. And so I wanted to draw that out and say like, here's the cost of trying to do that. So what did you do then? They wouldn't let you present. Yeah, so I made a YouTube video. It was funny. I tried to make the most appealing video I could and it completely backfired. So I made a short video like five minutes and I put it on YouTube. I sent it to the department and said, well, here's my perspective on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they didn't like it. Lots of people saw it and were mad at me. Then in August, you wrote another piece. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of draw on that and then we'll come back to what happened at Chicago because yeah, yeah. that piece really builds on, I think, the critique that you were doing in your video. Yeah. You were critiquing giving anyone a leg up for anything other than their merit in terms of faculty appointments or in terms of admissions and saying that the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are in some ways discriminating, even though the intention may be good. And I think you said that in your video that you recognize that the intention is good, but the process and the outcome is discriminatory. Is that a fair representation? That's correct. And that wasn't alone. That was with a co-author, Ivan Marinovich. So in the fall of 2020, when I was getting worried, he was getting worried. And his response was to get money from Stanford to organize what he calls a classical liberalism seminar series. It's by invitation only. And he only invites people that he knows that everyone can trust. Mm -hmm. And then we listen to a seminar on a controversial subject, usually related to classical liberalism. And then we have a discussion and everybody knows that they don't have to self-censor. And so as part of that, we had been talking about these issues, Yvonne and I, and By this point, we had concluded that the diversity, equity, inclusion infrastructure at universities was really poisonous, and it wasn't something that could be reformed. You got to go a different direction. Hmm. And so our goal was to outline why we thought that and to propose an alternative. And there were three basic points we were making. The first is that it's putting into effect a system that's fundamentally immoral. It's treating human beings as a means to an end. 
So you look at human beings as just a statistic, not as an individual, a person who's worthy of dignity and respect. And you say, I don't care about your work or how creative you've been or anything. We don't need any Chinese or whatever. So it's immoral in a fundamental way. The second thing was a critique based on our understanding of the goal of a university. So the goal of a university is the production of new knowledge. The secondary goal is the training of scholars who will carry on the production of new knowledge in the future. But that's tied up in the primary goal. And anytime you substitute alternative goals, you're diminishing your ability to achieve the primary goal. In this particular case, if you substitute other selection criteria for academic merit, you are not going to select the people who are highest on academic merit. You're undermining the core business of a university. And our third point was that these sorts of policies are extremely unpopular with the American public. Recent polling data has shown that three quarters of the American public think that diversity is important, but that you shouldn't take diversity criteria in, into account when you're doing hiring and promotions. The reason is it's just fundamentally opposed to moral intuition, the idea that you would discriminate against people. So let me just play devil's advocate yeah. and say, given the history and given that certain communities have systematically been discriminated against in the history of the U.S. and haven't yeah. been given opportunities, they haven't had a chance to rise isn't this, if we just continue on merit, isn't yeah. this fundamentally already perpetuating the disadvantage? I think that would have been a fairly convincing argument in 1964 for the black community. Mm -hmm. Affirmative action in 1964, when there was legal discrimination across a lot of the country against the black community, with a limited time frame, would have been a convincing argument. But it's almost 60 years later, and this clearly cannot be a permanent solution to that problem. The second thing is, this is being applied to communities that have never faced the kind of discrimination that the black community faced, to communities where the vast majority of people immigrated to the United States after there was no legal discrimination. And so it really doesn't make sense. That's from a moral standpoint. Mm -hmm. From a practical standpoint, we've been doing this for 60 years and it's not working. If you want to help these communities, you need to find a strategy that might actually work. And so what we proposed was there should be an emphasis on K-12 education. And so if universities care about this stuff, then they should invest money in improving education systems, particularly in underserved areas. You want the process to be one where the groundwork is laid for them and then they come on their merit, correct? Exactly. I think that's better for everyone. For undergraduate level, there's something called the mismatch effect. And Peter Archidiakono. He has a, a famous paper where specifically what he documented at Duke. So he actually got all of the admissions data, which the universities guard because they don't want people to see the sausage making. Yeah. Yeah. But what he found out was that a very large fraction of black students wanted to be scientists and engineers, but they had much lower incoming preparation and test scores. And they started in science and engineering, but they couldn't continue in it because they weren't prepared for it. And they ended up in the humanities. It's not to denigrate the humanities, but it's easier to get through college in 
in humanities than it is in physics. Uh, no I, I will just note for our listeners that I am a history professor and I want to contest that. But uh, for the sake of conversation, I'm going to let that one go. So it was not limited to affirmative action. He also considered legacy and athletic admissions, and they all showed the same pattern. This was entirely explained by students who are interested in the sciences switching to the humanities where the grades are higher. Hmm. This is interesting, and it actually gets to something that you proposed in your essay for Newsweek. And I thought this was a very smart proposal where you said, if we're genuinely interested in diversity, let's get rid of legacy admissions and let's get rid of athletics. And those are both areas which have historically favored white students. So by simply getting rid of those two things, what should naturally happen is it should open up the space theoretically for non-white people of merit to come into the institution. First of all, let's retreat to the moral perspective. The legacy admissions are essentially perpetuating a class system. That's clear that that should go. I don't see how anyone would argue against that. Well, I guess you would say that allows us to raise more funding and then we use that to support other students. But that's not really a very good argument on its own merits. It's an argument, but I think given the fact that then you you raise one exception and now people want another exception, all of a sudden, see, this is the real problem. When you have all of these exceptions coming in, you transfer the discussion from who's the most meritous to this political discussion of like, we want our group and we want our group and that's toxic. Okay, so there's the legacy issue. And then the sports thing, what people should understand is at a school like Harvard or Princeton, the majority of people getting a sports admission are affluent white students. And that's because like the majority of athletes, if you just count up the numbers, are playing squash and sailing team and rowing team. Mm -hmm. And so the sports thing is really a way to get affluent whites in. And so what's happening is if you're like a rich white parent, you can support DEI and your kid doesn't really suffer because, you know, they're on the squash team or they're a legacy. But who suffers is Chinese immigrants' children, Indian, Pakistani immigrants' children. They're the ones who are suffering, but they don't have the political clout and the money to push their viewpoint. I hear you, but someone could say, listen, this all works if the playing field is level. So let's take race out because they're like, it's not the same. We don't have legal discrimination anymore. But we know that we are not living in an equal society. And therefore, there are many people who are underprivileged. Let's just take class, for instance. They do not have those opportunities. So that's part of what I, I think we should be working on. There are two big things holding back underprivileged communities' school success. Number one, that's funding. And number two, that's teachers' unions. The funding part is being held back more by the political right. And the corruption of the teachers' unions tends to be associated with political left. And so both sides are going to have to give if we're going to improve education for children in underserved communities. Dorian has strong views about DEI initiatives on college campuses, and in a series of YouTube videos, he shared his critique of what's happening with respect to admissions and hiring. After the backlash, he took down the videos. But here are the takeaways from his YouTube video series. One, it's vital to see that DEI efforts are not hurting promising scientists of all demographics. Two, that there are major societal problems that need fixing, but adjusting departmental ratios at elite universities will not address them. And three, the current academic climate 
is hostile to dissenting points of view. And so you put out this YouTube video. What was the backlash? So what happens is a bunch of people go on Twitter and they use it as a force multiplier. Mm -hmm. They make it seem like there's a lot more people mad than actually are mad. Mm -hmm. And they use really uh, scary sounding words like racist and bigot and white supremacist and stuff. What's essential for people to understand is there's almost always three parties involved. There's the scholar, there's the political activist, and then there's the decision maker. The administration. <laughs> yeah, the administrator, whoever the decision maker is in this context. Mm -hmm. And so the political activists, they've come up with a set of language and tactics that are designed to manipulate the decision makers. They do it all on Twitter publicly, mm -hmm. and generally it culminates in a letter of denunciation. And so that's what I got, a letter of denunciation. And From? so signed by a large number of students and postdocs in my department. Any faculty? Actually, I don't know. I didn't read the signatures. I have a friend who was involved in the resistance in East Germany, and he was followed around and interrogated by the Stasi. And I once asked him, did you look at the Stasi files? Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I haven't looked at them. And I said, why? And he said, well, I know that some of my friends denounced me and I don't know, want to know which ones. And so that's how I feel about this letter of denunciation. I just don't want to know who signed that thing because I'm going to have to work with them. But second of all, I'm sure there was immense pressure being put on them. By the other. <laughs> There's some bad actors involved here. There's clearly some very bad actors. Mm -hmm. But then there's other people who are just a little weak hmm. who ended up signing it. So that happens. And then the administrator has to make a decision. Frequently, the administrator will think, oh, the easiest thing is to throw this guy under the bus. With MIT, that's exactly what happened. Now, part of that is that it's easy to cancel a lecture. To fire or curtail the research and teaching of a tenured professor at the University of Chicago, that's a big ask. Yeah, And that would come with huge reputational damage. Yeah, and if I can just go back, if I remember correctly, the letter asked for not just your teaching purview to be limited within the department, but also other faculty members who sympathize yes. with you or who have similar views, their teaching purview should also be limited. Is that right, so the letter asked basically to find and root out anyone who agreed with me and punish them. Yeah. <laughs> There's a certain type of person who can not even realize that they're stepping on a landmine. I was still operating in the America I grew up in. I wasn't operating in the America of 2020. Tell me a little bit about the America you grew up in, because clearly that has shaped or had some kind of impact on you, you deciding to speak out. I grew up in a small town in Maine, and people pretty much said what they thought, said what was on their minds. and. When I went to Harvard as an undergrad, same thing. It never really crossed my mind that there would be an issue with that. Mm -hmm. That's the America that I know about. Where you have freedom of expression. Where you have basic freedom of expression and also where there's sort of a tolerance for people who disagree with you. Like, oh yeah, I disagree with that guy, but we'll go hang out, no big deal. Instead of like, every minor thing is a fight to the death, is how it seems like now. Mm -hmm. So nothing happens at the University of Chicago in terms of professional repercussions for you. Nonetheless, you are still in that department. Yeah. You still have those grad students and postdocs and potentially some of the faculty you're working with were yeah. also part of this. Yeah. How is it now? Oh, it's terrible. 
the apartment is completely bifurcated. Mm-hmm. So like it's half for me, half against me. Let's come to the MIT situation. Now, yeah. what's interesting is in both cases where it was the University of Chicago students and postdocs writing that letter of denunciation and at MIT, they want professional repercussions for you. Yeah. And in the MIT case, there were professional repercussions because it's quite an honor to give a Carlson lecture. Yeah. Not being invited or being disinvited to that has consequences. Hopefully in the end, it's going to turn out okay because you have this talk now being hosted by Princeton. What's interesting is that in both these instances, they're calling for professional repercussions, whereas your actual professional expertise is not controversial at all. If anything, your professional expertise lines up squarely with a better future for all humanity if you can explore it that far. You said it, not me. I <laughs> yeah, mean, to I me, w- it's just fun science problems to work on. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. But I also think you're being uh, self-deprecating over here a little bit. But my point is, it's a very particular situation where people are not canceling you for what you're going to say in the lecture. Yeah, no. They're canceling you for views you hold, which actually have nothing to do yeah. with your expertise and how you execute your so, research you and know, teaching. It's like I'm radioactive. And if anyone comes into contact with me, they'll be radioactive. And there was actually an interesting case. So in the summer after the Newsweek article, the plan to sort of get me uninvited was hatched on Twitter. Hmm. Not to get me uninvited from the Carlson lecture, but just generally to have me never be invited to give lectures again. To say more about this, who hatched it? When was it hatched? In the summer? It was by a professor at University of Texas, Austin. This person wrote on Twitter... Next time you're considering someone in any of these fields and list all the things I've worked on, consider inviting someone for your seminar or conference who doesn't have highly problematic views. And then in response to this, people started brainstorming other people that could be invited who aren't me to give talks. What's interesting is one of my former postdocs responded, he was suggested by someone else. And he said, oh, you can't invite me because my work is still so tied up with Dorian's that I would have to present some of our mutual stuff. And so it's like, I'm so radioactive that he can't even present stuff that we worked on. So certain people have made it up into the faculty who think that it's appropriate to censor and attempt to destroy the career of people who disagree with them. Why are you speaking up? Like, oh. why is this important to you? You know, you could put your head down yeah. and go and do your climate models. Well, no, you can't anymore. So science is always like this special place to play where we didn't have to deal with politics and you got the positions based on how hard you worked and the creativity of your ideas. It'd be one thing if you could just retreat into science and you didn't have to deal with this stuff, but it's not like that anymore. So that's one point. And then the other point is I feel a moral duty to the society. I'm I'm 40 years old and I'm a tenured professor and our society is in chaos. And so I feel like I got to say something about this. I'm in a position where I can say something and think of all those people who aren't like all the guys I grew up with in high school. They're in a job where they could really get canned Mm -hmm. for saying the wrong thing and their kids are going to be hungry. I I feel a real responsibility to say this is not the right way before something really bad happens in our country. I mean, I almost feel like we're living in Dostoevsky's Russia. 
Okay, so I'm going to come to you. I'm going to pick a little bone with you, okay? <laughs> Which is your, your piece in Newsweek was really good, I thought. You know, you make your case. People may or may not agree with it. But right at the end, you use this comparison with Nazi Germany. Yeah. And maybe that was a step too far. I do no, it wasn't a step too far. I categorically deny that. So first of all, as soon as we wrote that, Uta Dijkman, who is a historian of science who focuses on the 1930s in Germany at Ben-Gurion University in Israel, wrote us and said, thank you for making that point. I'm currently writing a scholarly manuscript expanding on that point. Now, obviously, we didn't say that what's happening is exactly the same as what happened in Germany. All we said, it was a very limited comment, was that in the 1930s, they substituted merit-based preferences, which had led to a strong proportion of Jewish scholars for racial-based preferences. And if you look at the language they used, they said German people are underrepresented. I mean, they were using the exact same language. And as a result, the university's scientific productivity decreased. That was the limited point that we made. Tell me a little bit about your views on, as someone who has effectively, at least in some notable degree, been cancelled, yeah. how do you see cancel culture? There's a certain narrative right now that says, oh, there's no such thing as cancel culture. So that's definitely not true. There's a slightly more nuanced narrative that says it's not that big a deal. There is a certain argument you can make. If you look at the FIRE database, there's on the order of 100 scholars canceled a year. Eric Kaufman did a study of this in the spring. He got similar numbers. So he got about one in 2,000 scholars each year is canceled. And so the probability of a scholar being canceled is not that high. However, he has what he calls the iceberg of cancel culture. It turns out that like, you know, 90% of people are self-censoring because of those one in 2000 who are actually canceled. And so it's a really misleading way to talk about it, to say like, oh, it's not a big deal because only a hundred scholars are canceled a year. Everybody saw that I was canceled in the whole field. Hundreds of people just from in the field have written me and said, you know, I agree with you, but I can't say this out loud. You can't so say this say. out loud. That's really telling, right? I have similar situations where people will say, so-and-so was brave, but I can't publicly support them. What does that say about the state of our academy? Look at the job, right? What is the appeal of being a professor? You get to like be left alone and have a job for life and never have to worry or like take a risk. But in my mind, tenure is precisely so that you can take risks. Yeah, but they weed out everyone who thinks like that. So like all the students and postdocs who think like that and take risks, they're getting forced out of the field right now. Mm -hmm. And so that by the time you get to the people who have tenure, you're left with... Conformists. Yeah, it's not completely true, but that's the general explanation for the behavior that you just talked about. Dorian's cancellation is having ripple effects throughout academia. Just this week, David Romps, the director of the Berkeley Atmospheric Sciences Center, announced on Twitter that he was resigning after he suggested inviting Dorian to speak in order to, quote, reaffirm that it's a purely scientific organization, not a political one. After fellow faculty members made it clear that they were unwilling to ask Dorian Abbott to speak now, or perhaps ever, Romp said he would resign his position. He wrote, such exclusion signals that some opinions, even well-intentioned ones, are forbidden thereby increasing self-censorship, degrading public discourse, and contributing to our nation's political balkanization. 
There is some good news. After MIT withdrew its invitation for Dorian to deliver the Carlson Lecture, Princeton had the good sense to step into the breach and host Dorian's talk. The webinar is titled Climate and the Potential for Life on Other Planets. It is free and open to the public. You can find the Zoom registration link on Banished's episode description page, which you can access through booksmartstudios.org. Before I sign off, if you like what you heard today and want more thought-provoking content, please become a paying subscriber to Booksmart Studios. Subscribers get transcripts, full interviews, and bonus segments. And don't forget to comment, rate, and share what you've heard here today. Our success at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Fuolo. And I am Amna Khalid. Bye now. <laughs>